Yeah, so just briefly, I don't know how many people in here are familiar with the Refuge Center for Counseling, but we started in 2005 with the hopes of being a place that could provide care for the whole family and could pair excellence and affordability. So there's a lot of stereotypes with community mental health. You know, people tend to think, well, if it's affordable, then the facilities are gonna be run down, there's gonna be poor quality of care, high turnover, long wait lists. We just said we don't think it needs to be like that. So we opened the door with the vision of having a beautiful, warm, welcoming facility, well-trained therapists, cutting-edge technologies and modalities, like we do things like brain spotting and EMDR and neurofeedback, and we wanted to pair all of that with a sliding fee scale that anyone could afford. So our fees go down to $19 an hour, as high as $110. On average, our clients are paying about $51. And we just provided our 100,000th counseling session this past October uh, with almost um, a little over 18,000 of those just being last year alone. So we're very busy and very um, grateful for the favor that God has had on refuge over the years. <clears throat> so my first job out of college was at the YW Domestic Violence Center, and that is a large facility, 52 beds, for uh, women and children who have been in unsafe relationships to the point where they need to be in hiding for a while. So that was my first entrance into this field, and of course, fell in love with the bravery and courage of the people that I was working with. And even after we opened the refuge, which of course we have 48 counselors at the Refuge Center who all specialize in different things. So not to say that this is the only thing we do by any means, but it's a very important to me that all of our counselors are well trained in this issue so that when we hit upon it, we can handle it well. So that was my origins. I still for the past nine years have been serving one evening a week at the local domestic violence shelter in Franklin. It's called Bridges. So one night a week I'm there working with the ladies in the shelter because shelter work just kind of runs in my veins. Um, so this is typically about a two-hour presentation that I give in universities and I'm only going to get to 30 minutes of it. So there's a lot I won't touch on. But I've given Terry all the resources electronically. He can email them to you or get them on a thumb drive or something like that. I will say that I give my presentation primarily from the female perspective because that's mostly who I've worked with. Although we know that this can happen in same-sex relationships, um, we also know that men can be victims of domestic violence. But it's just so far underreported that we really don't have good data on it. Um, the other thing I would share is that, well, I always get asked questions I don't have the answer to, so I'm always prepared for that. Um, and then the other thing is that with the statistics being what they are, that one in three to one in four people will experience this at some point in their life, it's totally inevitable that someone in this room has been touched by this, whether it's in your family growing up or in a past or even current relationship. And so if this triggers some things for you, um, find one of these two after class and talk about where to take that, you know, what next steps, because um, that's always possible. So what exactly are we here talking about today, okay? Um, I, I want to define this for you, uh, this domestic violence thing, what is this? This is any pattern of behaviors that attempts to control an intimate partner or family member with the use of fear, manipulation, isolation, intimidation, and or physical or sexual abuse. The sole purpose is to establish power and control over another person. 
Um, there are four things that could be happening in a relationship. The one thing we're here to talk about today is intimate terrorism, okay? So intimate terrorism is bilateral, excuse me, unilateral violence. So it's top-down, power over, and it's a high level of coercive control. So that's what this morning is about. There's situational violence, and that's bilateral conflict over a particular issue. So maybe every time we talk about our oldest son or every time we talk about money, things really escalate. That's not what we're here to talk about today. There's violent resistance, and that's when the person who has been harmed again and again and again finally says, I'm not going to take this anymore, and next time I'm going to push back, or next time I'm going to stand up for myself. So that's um, an attempt to, re to resist the intimate terrorism, but the primary motive is not wanting to control the other person, it's to resist the harm. And then there's mutual violence, and that's when two equally coercive partners are engaged in a struggle for control of the relationship. But we're here to talk about that intimate terrorism. So a few of the myths are that it's not very common or serious. Again, referencing that one in three to one in four will experience this at some point in their life. Um, that it's only prevalent in low-income families, and that's absolutely not the case. There's a wonderful book called Not to People Like Us, Hidden Abuse in Upscale Marriages, and um, how it might look a little bit different when there's a lot on the line in terms of money or reputation, but ultimately all the dynamics are the same. Good morning. <laughs> There is a myth that alcohol and drug abuse or anger cause this. And we know that both of those things can escalate a situation. But you'll hear someone say, well, if my partner would just go do 28 days at Cumberland Heights and stop using, this wouldn't happen anymore. Or if my partner could do that 16-week anger management class and stop, you know, learn to journal and take deep breaths and walk away, this wouldn't happen anymore. What I'm here to tell you today, though, is it's really not about either of those things. This issue is caused by someone's beliefs and value systems. And they can go to detox, they can learn anger management skills, but if their core beliefs about how they can treat their partner or what's okay in a marriage, if those values and beliefs don't change, then ultimately the behavior won't either. Um, Tennessee's top three in the country for murders and domestic violence, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, it's a unique crime because the victim lives with the offender and on average someone doesn't call for help until after the fifth incident. So let's talk about the, what is it we're talking about? Exactly, kind of put some bones on it. This is a power and control wheel. Um, 1960s, a group of women in Duluth, Minnesota were gathering and chatting about their relationships and they realized, well, we're going through some similar things. Let's chart this out. This was later formalized by the Duluth Project in the 1980s. But on the outside of the wheel, you'll see the physical and sexual violence. So if someone kicks you in the gut, um, chokeholds you, if there was a sexual assault, we would know that was wrong, we would know that was violence, the law would protect us, we could typically get a restraining order, an order of protection. The problem is that by the time it has escalated to that point, usually a lot of other things have been going on in the relationship for quite some time that we knew felt bad, but we didn't necessarily know they were violence. So we'll start with intimidation. This is making someone afraid. 
just with looks, actions, or gestures. So it may be that you're in the kitchen cooking a meal with your partner and uh, there's some tension in the room and your partner just holds up this kitchen knife and they haven't lunged at you with it, they haven't uh, made a statement about harming you, but there's this gesture that represents it could get really ugly. Um, it might be smashing things, so it might be throwing something just past your head so it doesn't hit you but it smashes on the wall right next to you. Displaying weapons, abusing pets. I've worked with people who've, um, a number of situations, I'm trying to gauge uh, what, what the class could stomach this morning because I have a lot of stories over 17 years, but I had a woman who was, uh, she was blind and she was issued three separate seeing eye dogs by the state and he maimed or killed all three until the state took away her right to have pets. Well, uh, essentially, although he'd never physically laid hands on her, um, she lost her ability to move forward with independence because she didn't have her dogs anymore. Um, so if someone is harmful to animals or children, that moves them way up on the lethality scale. Intimidation might be blocking someone from leaving a room when you're in the middle of a hard conversation, towering over you. Um, some people will tell you their partner has a look, so the eyebrow goes up or the lip starts twitching, but you become aware that things are escalating. Emotional abuse, we're just going to make our way around here. Emotional abuse is putting someone down, making them feel crazy, saying hurtful things, playing mind games, calling them names. Okay. Um, the isolation is controlling what someone does, what they wear, where they go, who they talk to, uh, using jealousy to justify their actions. So it may be wanting access to all the accounts and um, reading all the text messages or emails. It may be, um, it, you know, I've seen it where it's not even always you can't do this, but maybe the person goes to visit a family member over the weekend and their partner calls so many times with emergencies with the kids that they think, well, next time I just won't even go. kind of makes it so bad it's hard to get away in the first place. Um, when every waking breath in a relationship becomes about keeping the peace or keeping your partner happy so that you can, you and your children can protect yourselves, you start to become disconnected from yourself. There's not a lot of room left for you in the relationship anymore. So there's not a lot of room to think about what are my hobbies, spiritual practices, preferences, uh, values. Everything becomes about keeping the peace. And so we start to become isolated from ourselves, if that makes sense. So if you were to go to a counselor in that position, your counselor might ask you questions like, well, how do you feel about that? Or what's your gut say? Um, what do you think intuitively is the right thing here? What do you want to do? And honestly, those kinds of questions are very difficult for a survivor because it's been so long since they were free to check in with themselves and, and it be about their needs and wants, okay? Minimizing, denying, and blaming is basically saying it's not that bad, it's not happening, and it's your fault. So every time your partner tries to raise a grievance or share a concern, the blame constantly gets shifted back around to their grievances. Um, we had a case at Refuge once where there was a couple that was coming. I was seeing the female, another therapist was seeing the male. Um, and uh, this, the, the, the male was very, very well trained in this area actually and led some courses around it and those kinds of things. And there was a situation where he had told her, when I am speaking to you, I never want you using your phone. 
That was just kind of a ground rule. He felt like it was disrespectful for her to be on her phone when he was talking. <coughs> so one night they were um, leaving an event and they were down near the Shelby Street projects um, over by the football stadium. It was about 10 at night and he was talking while he was driving and her mom sent her a message and so she looked down and very quickly just said no or yes to her mom, just a real quick response. Pulled over to the side of the road told her to get out and walk home, that she disrespected him for the last time, so find your way home. So the next week when he came back in for counseling, his counselor asked him about this, did you do this? And he said, yes, absolutely I did, and here's why. Here's why it was called for, because she doesn't listen, because she won't do what I say, because I had to teach her a lesson. So one of the things I would say as far as this category is it's not so much does the person take responsibility for their action, because he totally owned it. He, he said, yeah, I did this, but there's a justification on the back end, and here's why this was called for or necessary. So again, back to why it was the other person's fault. Using the children is putting kids in the middle, um, having them relay messages, threatening to take them away, um, undermining the authority of the other parent. Every time you might ask your child to do something, they might say, well, have a seat. You know, we don't do that in this house, just kind of undercutting you. We had a case where every time the parents were arguing, the father would go sleep with the two young girls who were seven and nine. And um, he, we, we never did think or find that there was anything inappropriate necessarily happening, but what was going on is the girls would wake up and they would realize if dad's in bed with us, it means that mom and dad are fighting. So they started having bedwetting and nightmares and those kinds of things. And he was putting the kids in the middle without ever saying anything bad about their mom, right? So they picked up on that and they were internalizing that. Amy, I've got to say, I can't tell you how many times I've seen on the front end uh, an abusive, usually husband, but an abusive husband controlling who said way on the front end, initially suddenly, but with increasing frequency, if you don't do what I say and things don't go the way I want, you'll never see your kids again. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Because they know that threat yeah. sets them back on their heels. Yeah. And puts them in well, it's one of the main reasons someone doesn't leave because they think, well, even <coughs> if they only get partial custody, even if they only get them on weekends, I won't be there Saturdays and Sundays to protect them anymore. And if you go to a therapist and I'll use that against you right. in court, you'll never have your kids. Right. Right. Sorry. Terrifying. Terrifying. And, and we'll actually talk about what are the <coughs> why why does someone stay? Uh, male privilege, I would just call that entitlement. So that's basically because of my gender or the money I make or my title at work or whatever that is. I am entitled to make the, the big decisions. I master the castle. I define roles. Um, that's also where image management comes in. So this is really important. Um, typically, uh, you know, this profile, it can be very charming, very charismatic. They're one way in public or at church or at work, and it looks really different at home. And um, it's very important to that individual to keep up appearances. And so when the couple goes to a therapist or to a pastor for help, perhaps the other partner thinks, gosh, we're finally in a place where we can talk about what's been going on at home and someone's here to help us. So they may start to disclose what's happening behind closed doors. Unfortunately, they've just then made their partner look really bad to a professional or to a minister. And typically there's a consequence to pay for that. And next time they come back, that other person's going to talk a lot less 
and they're going to say say a lot less. So uh, that is where we feel like couples work is not safe because it's really not okay for the other person to talk about what their experiences are uh, because th there's a consequence to pay. Um, also, couples work insinuates that this is a couple's problem. You do some of this, I do some of this. We've got to work out our couple's issue when, in fact, this is not that dynamic. Um, say more about that question. Uh, uh, the Christian tradition uh, or the... I'm not personally Church of Christ, so I'm not as, uh, as acquainted with with that, probably to be able to speak to that. I don't know, Terry. Uh, I think it spreads across all similar kinds of faith heritages and many others as well. I don't. Here, here's the answer. You're not going to like it, but it depends. <laughs> but if you want, I'm not happy to talk to you about it afterwards. Maybe, but I don't think it, we don't have a monopoly on that. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. 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 Not a monopoly, not immune. Yes, well said. Um, economic abuse is preventing someone from getting or keeping a job, making them ask for an allowance, turning in receipts for their purchases, um, not knowing about certain accounts. That gets really tricky when it moves to a divorce proceeding and the partner learns, oh my gosh, there was all this money I never knew about. And um, now it's really hard for me to fight for that because it, you know, just the rug was pulled out from underneath me. And finally, coercion and threats. So if you leave me, I'll take the kids. If you leave me, I'll harm you. If you leave me, I'll kill myself. So that's a pretty heavy weight to carry. Um, potentially making someone do illegal things or forcing them to, to drop charges. I worked with a woman once whose husband made a list of the 12 things that made a godly wife. And every Friday night, he evaluated this list. And if, yeah. I have so many stories for you. Um, if she met the 12 things, then he would have sex with her that weekend. If she hadn't, then she was penalized and she had to wait till next Friday when her list was evaluated. So I would put that under this category because those were veiled threats. The threat to withhold intimacy if you aren't perfect according to my standard. Um, I give this example because it's important. Um, again, if you're talking about people of a certain income level or a certain means, then um, there's a little more on the line in terms of uh, you know, reputation, position, things like that. And so there was a case where I worked with a woman and um, they were doing very well, the million dollar home, private schools, boats, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, and the, the interesting is, when she came to see me, she would tell me stories about what was happening at home, and she would talk about it like it was completely normal. She wasn't sad or ashamed, she just thought this is the norm. But when they had children, the spouse decided it was her job to stay home and take care of the kids. They didn't decide that together, he decided that. And um, so he created timesheets in 15-minute increments for her to complete during the day. And at the end of the day, he reviewed her timesheets. And if she had been ineffective or unproductive, then there was a consequence. So um, he and the kids would eat at the table, um, the adult table, and she'd have to eat at the children's table. So there was these kinds of punishments. Um, 
She would have to stand at attention on his side of the bed during his programming, and if she got drowsy or nodded off, um, then there was repercussions to pay. You know, she wasn't all that interested in the kinds of TV he was watching. Um, there was an incident where they were at a theme park and she was supposedly walking too fast, too many steps ahead of him. That was disrespectful. She was terrified of heights. It was lunch and the kids were hungry and crying, saying we want food. And so he found the highest, scariest roller coaster he could find and forced her to ride that in front of the children before he would feed them. That was her punishment for walking too fast. So, you know, is this somebody that can go to night court and get an order of protection from the magistrate? Well, no. Uh -uh. He's never said he's going to kill her. There aren't bruises. But is this somebody who lives in a prison with a prison warden? Yes. 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 That's right. And there are so many more stories there. But I, but I say that because there's a lot of ways that this can look. So the power and control wheel is the what's happening. The why and the how is the cycle of violence. So all relationships start off in some kind of honeymoon phase. You know, if we got kicked in the gut on date two, we're not going on date three, just frankly. So they all look really good and feel good on the front end. And in fact, quick involvement is one of the warning signs of this profile. So this person is typically wanting to get us from dating to living together, or living together to engage, because the more um, kind of ownership I have over you, the more I can justify my controlling efforts. But in the beginning, this person is highly interested in you. They're very curious to know about everything about you. They want to spend a lot of time with you. And boy, all that looks and feels really good. At some point in the relationship, the tension starts to build. People will tell you it starts to feel like you're walking on eggshells. Um, it's hard to know why the tension is building, but it's this period of increased criticism and complaints where I can't ever get it right. You know, yesterday I parked on the wrong side of the driveway. Today the coffee was too cold. Last night the kids were too loud at dinner. This morning my skirt was too short. You know, whatever it is, and no matter how many times I try to auto-correct, there's something tomorrow that they're upset about. Lundy Bancroft, who wrote a book called Why Does He Do That, um, says that this is the garden of resentments. So this is where our partner is collecting negative points against us and storing them up like grievances, squirreling them, squirreling them away to be used later like weapons. I call it the list. There's this list of things you're getting wrong, and when the list has gotten long enough, there's a violation or an explosion. So sometimes this is physical or sexual violence. Sometimes it's just that promises are broken, threats are carried out, there's a confrontation of some kind. I worked with a, a woman who was a pediatrician, very, very um, competent. So she shows up for her intake, doesn't have her intake paperwork, and I ask her, you know, do you have your documents? No, my husband does not allow me to use the printer at home because he says I'm too stupid to work it. Remember, she's very, very, very competent. So um, we started talking about what this looked like. The spouse was also in the medical field, so again, there's a lot on the line if she's to show up with bruises at work. Um, she said he would wake her up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they had box fans surrounding the perimeter of their room, so he'd go turn on all the box fans so the kids wouldn't hear anything. He'd shake her awake and then spend an hour, an hour and a half just screaming six inches from her face about all the things she'd screwed up and how disrespected he was and how angry she wa he was. And he'd turn over and go to sleep. He got it off his chest, and then she was, of course, awake the rest of the night, so dis, uh, disrupted and rattled. And so that is an example of an explosion. It's not always bruises. Um, but it's not a linear pattern. 
So after the violation or the explosion is the seduction honeymoon peacemaking. In the 1960s, they called this the heart's flower candy phase. So maybe it's gifts, maybe it's apologies, maybe it's we'll go see somebody, we'll, we'll talk to a pastor, we'll talk to a counselor. Um, sometimes it's just that I start getting up and helping out with the kids in the middle of the night, or I'm just a little bit more nice or helpful. But either way, it's spurts of kindness and generosity that hook you back in to the cycle and help them feel better about what they did in the violation phase. It is not real change. And sometimes you may go to someone, a professional, who would say, well, they've repented. You need to forgive them. But this is not repentance. This is to hook you back in and to just sort of make me feel better about what happened here. Does that make sense? Is that manipulation? Yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Because in this dynamic, this person gets what they want when they want it. Their needs take priority, and they have public status without sacrifices. So, so is this something that these people do consciously, or, or is this just the, what they think is the right way to live? Well, well, yes, okay, um, I am going to address Are that. Are they plotting this, or is this just no. their own emotions? This is a model, this is a behavior that was modeled for the individual. So this is a learned behavior. Typically, this was learned in the family system growing up, and what they've learned is it works. Again, when I say jump, everybody around me jumps. When I want something, I get it. And everybody's kind of dancing around me out of fear, but it's working for me. I don't have to make any sacrifices. I don't have to do my own work. I get what I want when I want it, and it works. So it works. Um, yeah, and so I've had people say before, gosh, my partner just lost it this weekend, just went on a rampage and lost it. Well, what happened? Just went through the house breaking stuff. Okay, what got broken? Did the fishing you know, tr uh, trophies get broken, the golf clubs, what got broken? Well, no, come to think of it, what got broken was my grandmother's vase, my favorite pearl necklace. Okay, so it wasn't, your partner didn't really lose it because what they broke was all the things that mattered to you. And do they do this at work in front of their boss? Well, no, never. They would never lose it in front of their boss. So this is a strategic set of behaviors intended to establish power and control over a particular person. It's not typically pervasive. Round and around we go. Each period can last for any amount of time. Some people would say they could go through this cycle in an hour. Some people would say it only happens once a year. But what matters is that it's a cycle. Typically, every time we go through it, it increases in frequency, so it actually starts to speed up and intensity. So here's the crazy thing about this cycle. The rescuer in the seduction peacemaking phase and the tormentor are the same person. The rescuer and the tormentor are the same person. So if you're in this relationship, you feel crazy. Does that make sense? How am I doing on time? Okay. All right. Um, I have so many other resources that Terry will send to you guys. Um, so because you asked that question, I am going to spend a little bit of time talking about this. Is it common for this person to feel guilt or discomfort about their abusive behavior? Um, oh, this is just some notes okay. that I have just because I wanted to reflect back on your question. So it's common for this person to feel some guilt or discomfort about their behavior, but they simultaneously believe strongly the validity of their excuses and justifications. Um, do they abuse me because they're mentally ill? 
It is their value system that is unhealthy, not their psychology. Mental illness does not cause abusiveness. Um, when an abuser feels sorry for their behavior, their regret collides with their sense of entitlement. And um, for many decades, therapists have been attempting to help abusive individuals by guiding them in identifying and expressing their feelings. Alas, this well-meaning but misguided approach actually feeds the abuser's selfish focus on themselves, which is a driving force of the abusiveness. So the therapeutic work for this individual is actually around their beliefs and their values more than it is around how disrespected I feel or how angry I feel. That just kind of gives a platform for all of that. If you are um, friends with someone who's going through this, if you have someone um, who needs some support, I included a little worksheet called Ways to Help and Support a Victim of Domestic Violence. And what happens is your friend will come to you and they will say, here's what I've been going through and this is a little um, taste of what's been happening behind closed doors. And remember, they've been in a relationship where they were told what to think, what to feel, and what to do. And then they come to a friend or a therapist who has the very best intentions, and we tell them what to think and what to feel and what to do. So in this case, that's re-victimizing. So there are some guidelines when you're working with someone. Um, listen more and talk less. Think with them, but not for them. Constantly ask the empowering question, what do you want to do? Believe them. Don't tell them to leave or stay. How about that? That one's really hard. That one's really hard. But that's about your agenda for the person, and the most important thing is that they rediscover what it is they want to do, and they have to make that decision for themselves in their own time uh, without feeling like they're trying to please or appease their partner, you, or anyone else. Um, it is the level of loyalty, respect, patience, and support that a abused person receives from their friends and family that largely determines their ability to stay free. Uh, the greatest compliment I ever received from a client was a person who actually was killed three years ago, but she told me in session, and it was such a simple thing, she said it and moved right on, but I thought it was the greatest thing anybody had ever said. She said, you just keep giving me back to myself. Just keep giving me back to myself. So do victims seek out abuse? This is a question. Um, we saw in the cycle, in the middle there was, you know, why do people stay? Well, fear, what's going to happen to me or my kids or my partner? Um, there is love. I've given and given and sacrificed at every level, and I've done everything I know to do at, at um to, to make my partner happy. And frankly, there are good times. I mean, those honeymoon periods are very seductive. I probably should have spent a little bit more time on that. Um, the honeymoon phase is the language of seduction, and your partner knows it before you do. And what I mean by that is it's the thing that's going to hook you back in. So I had a woman whose car kept breaking down. Every time she'd go to work, try to take, take the kids to school, it was infuriating. She's about to lose her job. Right as she decides she's going to get out of this really dangerous relationship, there's a new Ford pickup in the driveway for her. So that was the thing that her partner knew would hook her back in. I had someone else who her husband um, uh, planted churches and... Um, was a very uh, large and intimidating person, also secretly had a methamphetamine addiction. And um, they would get in these arguments and then break for the night. He'd go sleep in the guest room. When he'd come out in the morning, he would say to her, 
They wouldn't address the argument. He would never address the things he said to her, but he would say, I've been on my knees all night before the Lord, and then God has given me a vision for our marriage, and here's the direction our family's going to go in. Well, again, nothing that happened was addressed. There was no repentance or forgiveness or any of that. But she felt like, well, who am I to argue with a minister who's been on his knees all night before the Lord and has been given direction from God? And so off they go onto the next thing, and there was never any resolution. That was her language of seduction. Do you get that? That kept her in the cycle where nothing was ever tended to. Um, so there's fear, there's love, there's hope, dreams, possibility that, well, if I can figure out what's on this list, if I can just make my partner happy, then, you know, things will be better. This is my fault. Um, but we do know that typically people are in more than one abusive relationship, and so it's a fair question. Do we seek out abuse? And I get asked that all the time. You know, is there a scarlet letter? Do I have a magnet? What draws these people to me? And I said, no, 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 I don't believe any of those things. What, what we do know, research says, that when we've been in unsafe relationships, especially if we grew up like that, that abuse resonates more than healthy boundaries. It's familiar to us. It's what we've known. And there is this psychological principle of reenactment or repetition compulsion, which means we go back to the scene of the accident, attempting from a place of power to resolve it and have a good ending, but the wound only deepens. So we want, it, we want to resolve it, but it's not a safe place to resolve it. Um, however, ultimately, my belief is that these abusive individuals find our very best qualities, generosity, loyalty, kindness, and they use them against us. So it's not that I seek it out, it's not that I have a magnet, but these people use the very best things about me and somehow used it against me in a way that kept me in this relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so then, so then it's hard for the victim to not want to say, well, I'm never, I gotta have my guard up and my walls up and I can't ever trust people again. And so then there's some work to do there. I included a copy of a safety plan, so if you're working with someone who's in an unsafe relationship, there should be a physical and emotional safety plan. So if I decide to stay, I've got some things to set up. Maybe I need to learn how to direct arguments out of rooms that only have one exit, like bathrooms. Um, it's a bad idea to have arguments in the kitchen where there's potential weapons. If we're in a townhouse, maybe I can tell the neighbors if I knock a certain way on the wall that they know that means call the police. If I decide to leave, I need to um, have copies of things that can be destroyed very quickly and are hard to replace, like social security documents and passports and financial records. Probably want to take a different route home from familiar places like grocery stores and banks and work. Um, you also need an emotional safety plan. So when I'm going through the process of separating, who can I talk to about what I'm facing? When I feel depressed or nostalgic for the good times, who can reflect back to me what it was really like? Um, what support groups can I attend? And there are some awesome support groups, the ones I'm most familiar with. The YW runs one in Davidson County. Um, Bridges runs one in uh, Franklin, and actually we, uh, our therapists are the ones that run that. And then uh, our therapists in Columbia run the one with Center of Hope. So those are always free, and they always include free child care. Um, one more piece, and then I'm going to read a poem to y'all. Um, 
the equality wheel, sometimes someone knows exactly what abusive relationships look like. It's all they've ever known. But if you ask them to describe what is a healthy relationship, they actually can't do it because they don't know. And how can they hold out for it? How can they set the bar there if they don't actually know what healthy relationship looks like? So healthy is things like treating someone's opinions with respect, even if they differ from yours. It means that you can raise your grievances and concerns without retaliation. It means shared responsibility and economic partnership. So it's important that you help someone have a picture of what this looks like in a good place. Barbie and Dee White are two therapists. I think they've retired now. They're a couple. But they came up with this little document called what is a law-based relationship versus a grace-based relationship. So like a law-based is who's right, Grace-based is that there's empathy with understanding and respect. Law-based means we fill prescribed roles. Grace-based means there's an acceptance of differences and gifts. So if you're working with someone who the faith language is very important to them and to, to interpret some of these things, this is a wonderful resource. So I do this presentation in honor of the clients who haven't lived and haven't made it because I feel like every time I go somewhere and give this presentation, um, someone in the audience is more well-informed and more well-resourced uh, resourced to help themselves or others um, so that hopefully it does not end in the loss of a life. But this is Sheila Gutierrez. I didn't know her. I haven't met her or I didn't meet her, but she was a client at the YW or in the early 90s. And this has been photocopied so many times it's hard to see her face, but she has bright burning red hair. And um, Sheila came to the YW and wanted to regain her life after being abused for a number of years. And she worked her program really hard and didn't have any contact with her partner and then left and moved in with her brother and had intended to restart her life. And unfortunately, unbeknownst to her, all the time that she had been doing this, her partner had actually been stalking her. And he followed her to Starwood Amphitheater one night for a concert out there in 1991, and he killed her and himself. And the intake worker who brought her into the shelter wrote a poem in her honor, and it was published in the Tennessean that year. So I am going to read this in honor of Sheila and in honor of y'all committing your morning to learning more about this. So. It says, Woman of passion, spirit fired by God. I remember when you first came to the shelter. I opened the door. You looked at me and immediately your soul greeted mine with an invitation to fly. There was so much pain in your heart, but so much light in your eyes. That night you told me of the horrors you had survived. Your silent stream of tears carried me to the agony within. You spoke with a hastening tone, each breath gasping for life, for freedom, maybe for fear that if you didn't speak fast enough, you wouldn't be allowed to finish your thoughts. I responded soothingly with the assurance that you were safe. You had all the time you needed to express your pain. You were so gracious, so thankful to be able to cry unabashedly, scream uninhibitedly laugh uncontrollably, and just sit and think safely. Woman of passion, spirit guided by God, I remember your strength. I watched you slowly and steadily reconstruct yourself, adamantly demanding back every stolen piece of you 
constantly igniting the flickering flame in your soul. I watched you birth fire. Yes, you with your full crown of burning red locks were fire, are fire. Your smiles were always big enough to light the world and your hugs were tight enough to be forever. Woman of passion, spirit freed, by God, now you fly with the eagles. Can't nobody clip your wings, lock you in a box, extinguish the fire in your soul, or suffocate the wind songs through your hair. So hopefully I wrapped up with just enough margin to answer a few questions.